Welcome to Data Remediations, a podcast connecting environmental data with people and places through stories and art. Welcome to Data Remediations. I'm host Bethany Wigan from the Penn Program in Environmental Humanities. For this episode of the pod, we're joined by national climate sensing and data storytelling partners in Houston. We're talking with anthropologist and legendary podcaster Dominic Boyer. Dominic's lived in Houston for about a decade and was there when Hurricane Harvey smashed through so many records. Later in the pod, you're also going to hear from longtime Houstonian award-winning organizer Judith Nieto. She's one of the six women of color who have formed the art and activist collaborative Another Gulf is Possible. I'm also super excited that I got to introduce Meg Ehrenberg to the podcast. You just heard Meg's voice. Hi, I'm Meg. I'm managing director at PBEH. I've been an eager listener of data remediations, and I'm excited to be starting to participate a bit more directly. Actually, one of my favorite pods to date. Mm-hmm, mine too. Because Dominique and Yudith help us think through questions that are pretty near and dear mm. to us at PPH. Especially, how do we build genuine collaboration between community groups and academic researchers? Mm, totally. So before we get into some of the amazing data storytelling work happening in Houston and the Gulf Coast, just quick two shout-outs to events coming soon here in Philly. The first, December 11th, mark your calendar, community meeting in South Philadelphia, where this past June, the Philadelphia Energy Solutions Refinery blew up. The meeting is called Futures Beyond Refining and lots more info at futuresbeyondrefining.wordpress.com. And actually, a couple weeks before that, we're hosting Environmental Storytelling and Virtual Reality. That festival is featuring our artist-in-residence, Rod Coover's premiere performance of Altering Shores, among many other And so amazing. Things. My whole calendar is blocked out for November 22 and 23. It's, it's really absolutely incredible. Yeah. Don't miss it. The details are available at virtualenvironment.net. Yay! Okay. Let's get into this pod featuring Houston and Gulf Coast stories. You might remember from episode five that here in Philadelphia, we're asking people to tell climate stories about places they love to contribute my climate story. Anthropologist Dominic Boyer and his team are asking the opposite. They're researching data stories about a place that feels a little unloved, Houston. But the thing that's hard to <laughs> to deal with in Houston is just people don't seem to care very much about Houston. And that was kind of subtly one of the things we were trying to probe in this study was people's sense of attachment to place in Houston, how much they cared about their homes and their neighborhoods and the relations and how much they thought, you know, they could just uproot and move with a kind of typical settler mobile frontier fantasy of just, well, just pick up and move to the next place. For the most part, I think people really view Houston as a place you work. It's a job. You come to Houston for a job, and when the job is over, maybe you stay in Houston or maybe you don't. Dominic's not just an anthropologist and a podcaster. He's also a filmmaker, together with co-podcaster and anthropologist Simini Howe. Together, 
They're the driving forces behind the creation of a memorial to the world's first lost glacier, the Ökjökull Glacier in Iceland. You might want to know more about the many projects he's working on, including even a screenplay for a show about Houston. Think The Wire, but in the bios of Harris County rather than the backwaters of Baltimore. So we've made out a supplemental track to this data remediations pod. You can check out the website. Even more, Dominic's also the founding director of the Center for Energy Humanities, SENS, at Rice University. Dominic moved to Houston for a job with his partner, Simony, about a decade ago. Simony Howe, my partner, and I moved to Houston January 2009. And so we've been living in the city for about a decade. And when we moved to Houston, we actually wanted to, to do something that was connected to Houston. And so we said, well, what's Houston about? And we looked, okay, energy. Energy is an important thing to look at today. And so we started a project on renewable energy, but in Mexico, not in the Houston area. And we did that project for several years. That desire to do a research project in their own backyard, their own bayou, was catalyzed by the cataclysm that was Hurricane Harvey. Harvey, the third 500-year storm that Houston faced. It was really the experience of Harvey, which we didn't lose anything. We were inconvenienced, but we, we didn't materially lose anything. But I think like everyone in the city, the emotional hit was very hard and very deep to be in the middle of that, of that experience, which was the largest rainfall event in the history of the continental United And it's just... You know, I think in the aftermath of that, I had never thought I would do research in Houston, seriously. I would love to get inside an oil and gas company and do a kind of insider ethnography, but the chances of that are infinitesimally small. Those are very well-guarded spaces and they keep people like, nosy people like us out. But I did think that I had to do something, make some small contribution to this place that was our home, that had become our home. And so I got a grant from the National Science Foundation to do some research on the recovery process from Harvey, especially in the areas that flooded multiple times during those 500-year events. So that's kind of how we got we selected neighborhoods like Meyerland and Greenspoint, where these are places that had had multiple catastrophic flooding events within a few years. And the major research question of the study was, what is the emotional impact of that? How does it shake your sense of attachment to your homes, your neighborhoods, even to the city itself, undergoing an experience of repeated catastrophic flooding? You can read a bit more about Dominic and co-PI Mark Vardy's NSF Rapid, number 1760400, you can Google it and find out more on the NSF's website. But Dominic also explains. You know, we talked to, we surveyed something like 200 people. We had in-depth interviews with 90 folks, some experts, but also mostly people who had flooded and just got their stories about how the flooding had affected them, and especially the recovery process. And my colleague, Lacey M. Johnson, who's a, a colleague at Rice and somebody who's written about her own Harvey flood experience and now directs the uh, Houston Flood Museum, she has said, you know, recovery is the wrong word. Like you, you can't recover from things like that. I mean, you mm. can you can fight against them. You can try to try to move forward, but the idea that you get back to where you were before is is a false uh, fantasy. And I think that is certainly a feeling that is uh, corroborated by the kinds of 
narratives we heard that, you know, the event of the hurricane itself was not the most uh, traumatic part of this experience. It was really the recovery process and the fear of going forward of just you're not safe and the city may not be safe. Harvey Flood Museum has a really important mission. I'm quoting from their webpage. Their mission is to exhibit the connections between human activities and catastrophic flooding as linked to wealth inequality and racial disparities, and to act as a catalyst for reimagining the ways Houston, the Gulf Coast, and the wider world evolve in a context of persistent natural disasters. In the fall of 2020, the flood director's founder, Lacey Johnson, and Dominic will collaborate on some data storytelling projects. And Lacey's already written about the Ook Memorial. There's so many forms of danger, so many everyday forms of toxicity, and so few ways to really, you know, safety, once you understand what we're up against, is not even really a concept in Houston. And yet, it's strange the extent to which people don't want to think and talk about this, how people can live with uh, chemical facilities in their neighborhoods and not know about it, how they can live with the risk of catastrophic flooding and try to keep that in the back of their mind. So there is something kind of exhausting about trying to push the environmental needle in Houston that I'm sure you felt everywhere. And I'm sure that, you know, I'm not trying to make an exceptionalist claim. I'm sure it's hard everywhere. I'm sure it's hard in Philadelphia. And, you know, blessings to everyone who does this work. The problem is not that we don't know what's happening. The problem is not that we don't have data. I mean, yes, we could get more data. And I'm not saying that it's not important to get more data. Don't get me wrong. So would it be important to to get more information and data from communities of color, fenceline communities, absolutely. But it has to be on terms that they're comfortable with, and it can't be us helicoptering in with a set of you know research questions that are interesting for our careers, basically, uh, or our academic conversations that aren't meaningful for them. And communities uh, like Manchester, with Judith's from, or Galena Park, or areas that are among the highest risk for all sorts of cancers and other kind of health issues because of their constant exposure to dangerous, very dangerous loads of petrochemical pollution. And so those communities are at risk and they are, I think, taking steps themselves already through organizations like Tejas, the Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services who work in Houston's East End. They are you know, doing a lot of good work there. Fenceline communities, as we'll hear from longtime Houstonian and now New Orleansian Judith Nieto, Fenceline communities have a hard time getting data. Organizations, such as Tejas, have been working to get that data. Judith and others have been making stories with that data, at first leading toxic tours and also making art. I wear many hats. <laughs> I work as a cultural organizer with Another Gulf is Possible, and I'm also an interpreter and translator for a new collective that emerged earlier this year called Bancha Lenguas. That's so cool. You were telling me before we started the interview what that name means. Do you want to share it? It's such a great title. Yeah, so Bancha Lenguas is actually two languages. Uh, Bulbancha is the original name of uh, New Orleans. 
And that means the place where many tongues are spoken or is spoken. And we're the bancha lenguas because where there's a bunch of us that speak many languages. But really, we're Spanish speakers from South America and Mexico uh, doing interpreting work in the city of New Orleans. Judith hails from Manchester, where she worked with Tejas and especially with kids in the community. I got to see a mural that Judith helped her kids make. It's the cover art for this pod's episode. Judith's done so much work, you can see why she's been honored with a Peacemaker Award from the Houston Peace and Justice Center and why Gris named her one of 50 fixers of 2018. She talked with me when she visited us in Philly and about some work she had done on a data collection project in Manchester a few years ago, collecting air samples. Actually completely surrounded on all sides by different various facilities um, and companies. Chemical plants, chemical storage tanks, the Valero refinery, Uh, We have a metal crushing facility and a wastewater treatment plant and a rail yard for hazardous cargo surrounding the community. So there's only two ways in and out of the community and really just one because of a bridge that was built after a man was almost died waiting for help. You know, the community organized together to demand that bridge be built. So now luckily we have one way in and out permanently unless something happens to that bridge. But... The community, you know, has a lot of contamination, not just air pollution, but also soil contamination mm-hmm. and chemical water runoff as well and all of that. But yeah, so uh, this series of data collection happened because we were seeing that after every rain, this water would just kind of stay in the ditches and wouldn't go anywhere because it was either too thick or was blocking mm-hmm. the drainage system and we couldn't garden and do anything with the soil and we needed more data we needed our own data mm-hmm. to be able to interpret it to the community so that we could mobilize them and help them understand mm-hmm. the severity of what what was happening mm-hmm. in the community mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I was working with Tejas at the time, Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services, and they had already done a series of data collection, but not to this degree. They didn't collect their own air samples before. And so working with them and some of the community members, we wanted to understand Mm -hmm. the level of contamination that was existing in the air, you know. De buscarte y de encontrarte. Making air quality measurements is an art. Equipment that can make really good measurements is pretty expensive. Citizen science kits are available, but the data they generate requires expertise to understand. So what we did after the data was collected and the data was you know, handed back to us in a very scientific way. We couldn't even interpret it sometimes, you know, so we worked together with researchers and scientists. It was actually a little difficult because the patches that we were using to collect the data were collecting particulate matter. Okay. It wasn't collecting like VOCs. And those those kits are way more expensive and we wouldn't be able to do it for like 
um, a summer long project. Um, so we stuck with particulate matter to see how much of that was in the community, you know, how many heavy metals were just floating up in the air. And that really tied to the metal crushing facility, which was fairly new okay. um, in the community. A friend of mine had just passed away from colon cancer and he was only 20, 27 so years old. The only reason that his parents actually agreed to do this project because that that monitor was placed in their home or like outside in their yard um, was because they somehow knew or tied the facilities emergence in the community to their kids cancer because they said well you know the only thing that was new in our family was that that facility and we want to know whether or not that had something to do with our son's death. And so uh, we placed it in the yard and the, the samples would come back with loads of particulate matter, specifically in that, mm. that home because mm. they were so close. They were adjacent to that facility. Mm. Um, and also uh, it was kind of hard to find a lab that would take these samples. In, in Texas, in Houston, so we had to send it off to other places. So we found that it was actually, it would be really hard for other people, for just regular community members to find facilities and find these kids at an affordable price. Mm. You know, it's just not accessible. Yeah. I think if you're in the know, it's not accessible for a regular community member right. to seek these right. things out. Right. You would have to have some type of connection to someone in academia, someone in the science department, you know. These relationships are very specific, you know. It's not just a community member saying, I need to do this and Google it and they'll, you know, find the answer. It, that, it doesn't always work that way unless they know what they're looking for. These uh, community and academic and science relationships are essential to people's survival sometimes, you know, um, in the sense that if they're dealing with something like in the case of Manchester, they need allies and people who are willing to be culturally sensitive and competent to be able to work with a specific group of people, you know, and knowing when to step back and knowing what questions to ask and what not to ask, or, you know, being open to the community members' questions, you know, and their needs. A lot of the times what happens is, you know, academic groups or science and research groups, they have their own specific questions that they need answered. And the communities have their own needs and questions and their own resources that they need from these relationships. So there needs to be an exchange, you know, an equitable exchange of not just knowledge, but also resources. Because the community members are giving up their lived experience, which is invaluable to the work, and also their time and their own resources. We heard similar cautions raised by Dominic. Research questions need to be generated and data collected with and for community, not for the data's importance to academic careers. 
the heavy burdens that even the best-intentioned academic research can place on environmental justice fence-line communities also explains, in part, why both Dominic and Judith have made art-making so central to their various research practices and collaboratives. Here's Judith and then Dominic again. You know, the people that we worked with in Manchester, they're living day to day. Their worry is whether they'll have enough funds to have dinner on the table. They can't take time out of their weekend to work with, with us sometimes if there's not an incentive, uh, a monetary incentive to be able to feed their kids, you know, or have extra income. And that's something that we also learned and had to be very adamant with working with these types of groups. This is why for us at SENS, from the beginning, we, we wanted to think about how the humanities and social sciences could be brought into the energy environmental questions and conversations of our times. But the arts were always there from the beginning. And I think our greatest successes have been partnerships between scientists, humanists, and artists. Things like the Okiokult Glacier Memorial in Iceland, like those projects are the ones that have, I think, had the widest impact and have really, I think, gotten a lot of people to change some of their habits. I mean, we've received letters from people who saw that memorial and said the first thing they did was to call up their investment company and remove all the fossil fuels from their retirement portfolio. I mean, little things that aggregated can help a lot, I think, to put pressure on and bring these companies finally to close for good. Part of the, the stubbornness of this problem, wherever you look, is that for the most part, our minds are filled with memories of fossil fueled pleasures, like all the good things we've been able to do because we have energy ready every time we flick a light switch or we can jump in our car and drive or jump on a plane and see this or that. And so we just, you know, those of us who've grown up in the 20th, 21st century, we know a world of energetic abundance and no environmental consequences because those are much longer term or they're put, you know, more marginal communities are forced to bear those uh, bear those risks and costs. And I think that where the arts are really, really helpful is in terms of creating experiences, and they don't have to just be dystopian experiences, but creating experiences that can rupture the kind of memory loops and fulfillment loops of fossil fuel modernity. I really feel like the arts are a place where you can actually by, by working speculatively, by working historically, you can you can rupture some of those loops in ways that can be really effective to get people to just see things and feel things in different ways. Art has been central to Judith's work too. First as an organizer in Manchester, where she often worked with kids. Did work with another collective, more of like an artist performance art collective called Statistics in Action who helped us interpret the, the data, the hard data, to ways that the community and children could understand. It was a two-day type of event. Of course, there needed to be food, and there was, I think, a small... The great connector. Food. Food. Good <laughs> yes. food, preferably. You know, in all cultures, Always. we need to have food, you know? And also, I think there was a small honorarium for their time, and uh, we played games and we used theater the oppressed to be able to engage them physically and also like, keep them engaged mentally on what this data was. Theater the oppressed was created
created by Augusto Boal, who's a Brazilian performance teacher. And it was a mixture of Teatro Campesino, which also emerged from the farm workers movement to be able to communicate with the atrocities that they were living in, you know, working for these white landowners, you know. And, um, so Theater of the Oppressed came out of that. And Brian and I uh, had taken a training, a week-long training to be able to incorporate the Theater of the Oppressed in our organizing when connecting and communicating with our communities and our people, you know, that we're working with. Um, and so we use that training and those strategies to be able to communicate this data. And then along with Statistics in Action, who also use Theater of the Oppressed. I remember this game that we played because the kids were also involved, where we used our bodies and their bodies to help them understand what parts per billion look like. And we used hula hoops, you know, to be able to play around. And like, we gathered a bunch of people in this hula hoop and we had to be able to move and like, or not move and the kids, you know, they always get a kick out of like being constrained somehow. <laughs> um, so that was really fun. And we compared what a drop of water would look like in a sink and what it looked like for us to be in that hula hoop and the number of parts per billion and which was which. In Philly, we've learned a ton from these Gulf Coast researchers and art activists. I really had a blast talking with both Dominique and Judith. At PPEH, we're super inspired by their various collaborative projects. And I think you'll want to stay tuned for episode 7, all about data stories and art making that might envision a Philly without refining, even as some members of our city seem stuck in the petro past. We'll explore how art and the art of story might help us conceive of pleasures and futures beyond refining. Check out the research as it's ongoing, futuresbeyondrefining.wordpress.com. And for sure, don't forget to turn out on November 21 and 22 for environmental storytelling and virtual reality, including the special live performance of The Altering Shore by past guest of this pod, artist Rod Coover. As always... These events are free and public. You can sign up for tickets to The Altering Shore at virtualenvironment.net. See you next time. Poor lightning just gotta be Houston bound. My plane leader in the morning. Poor lightning just gotta be used about.